4: Recorded live. You're with- And happy holidays,
0: everybody. This is Faith Hill for RAD, recording artists, actors, and athletes against drunk driving. Please remember during this holiday season, when you celebrate, designate. Always choose a designated driver. Your friends and family will thank you for it. Have a safe and happy holiday, and remember, friends, don't let friends drive drunk.
5: A public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council.
6: Our morning script is coming from Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over the king on, over his kingdom. Order it and establish it with, justice, with judgment and justice from that time forth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform. Scripture for this morning: Isaiah nine six
4: and seven more scripture of today.
7: Take
8: a break from your busy schedule and join Harold Sela for Guidelines, a five-minute commentary on living. Some folks, both men and women, have hearts coated with Teflon, or an emotional substance of some kind which absolutely keeps them from bonding with anybody. Now, they're nice people, too, women who are attractive with good personalities and guys who are steady as a rock with good jobs, clean-cut, and frankly, with the potential of making a pretty good husband. Honestly, they would like to leave the ranks of singles and occasionally have social contact with members of the opposite sex. But most of the time, they sit at home, their phones so silent, they can almost hear the creaking of the earth on its axis. wrong? What coats the heart with Teflon and keeps it from bonding with someone? There are a variety of reasons, but try some of these for size, should you be in that growing army of singles the world over. First, there's the silent Cindy complex or the bashful bill problem. For whatever reason, communication with a member of the opposite sex is very difficult, perhaps impossible. Talk to a friend, And these candidates for a life of single solitude can talk until they have calluses on their vocal cords and wind erosion on their teeth. But talk to a member of the opposite sex. They get laryngitis. So how do you overcome this problem? Get people to talk about themselves. Hey, once you've learned that the favorite topic of conversation for most people the world over is talking about, number one, you never run out of things to say. Tell me about yourself. What do you do for fun? What do you think about whatever? You're off and running. They talk, you listen. Getting to know someone, really knowing that person, takes time and the willingness to be vulnerable, to be yourself, neither more nor less, and to let others see inside you sharing your feelings, your thoughts, and your ideas, which are really worth listening to. Then there's the normal person whose blood pressure skyrockets when they have a social encounter with a possibility and you would swear that this individual has been vaccinated with an old-fashioned phonograph needle. They talk nonstop. They go on and on and on. After a while, the other person wants to go to the bathroom and crawl out a window and go home. Another turnoff, which coats the heart with Teflon, is the got an opinion about everything group. They've figured out the whole world. It's the Mr. Right who turns out to be Mr. Always Right. He's often left alone. I know that so-and-so is intelligent, one young woman told me, but it's just that he has an opinion about everything. This includes intolerance, prejudices, religion, strong likes and dislikes, politics. Who are very much in love with themselves, who fix their attention on their hair, their nails, their makeup, their car, their looks, they tend to push others away, who can't stand the pretense and the tinsel. Closing thought. Never to be included in the turnoff list are the following: integrity, moral standards that are too high, commitment, respect, compassion, communication, thoughtfulness, kindness and genuine concern for others. Yes, I know that well-educated women seem to intimidate some men, but the answer is not dumbing down to the level of mediocrity, but to await God's timing in your life. The bottom line is that it's far better to be in the will of God and single than married and out of the will of God. Be yourself, and the Teflon coating will disappear, removed with the warmth of love, genuineness, and security. Recently, a friend told me, I read your book on singles three times. What helped me most was the statement that I'm complete right now. I ran out of time on that one. Her entire statement was, I read your book on singles three times, and what helped me more than anything else was your saying that marriage doesn't complete anybody. I'm complete right now, whole person, and Joy Play Single. Joy Play Single in a Couple's World is the name of that book. You'll probably find it in your local Christian bookstore or visit our bookstore online and you'll find it right there.
9: Happy day. Oh, a happy day when Jesus will walk. Thank you. When Jesus was... See <laughs> you
4: Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
3: It seems to me that one of the reasons that poverty is so difficult to confront is because it forces us to look into the eyes of people who are not as different from us as we would like to believe and hear their stories and walk with them in their struggles and see, really see the pain living in their eyes. That's the Reverend Dr. Chris Tuttle, and
5: today he brings you an inspiring message of faith and hope. I'm Peter Wallace. This is day one.
0: Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's mainline Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Here's our host, Peter Wallace, to introduce this week's speaker.
5: Thank you, Sherry. Today on day one, we're delighted to have with us the Reverend Dr. Chris Tuttle, pastor and head of staff of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Durham, North Carolina, where he has served since 2008. Chris received his undergraduate education at Davidson College in North Carolina and earned Master of Divinity and Doctor of Ministry degrees from Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Chris, welcome to day one. Thank you, Peter. Westminster Presbyterian is an active congregation in Durham, North Carolina, involved in a number of ministries within the congregation and out in the community. What would you say is the overall mission of the church, and, and how does it get translated into various efforts?
3: Long before I got there, we have a number of good folks, and including my wonderful predecessor, who's quoted Micah 6-8, Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God, which we read often at the beginning of worship and is on the front of our bulletin, hmm. Um, and it's something that that has resonated deeply with our congregation, as with many for a long time, Um, and that has helped drive them out in the community for decades across Durham, downtown, um, with with those who are hungry and homeless and hurting, working for affordable housing, and um, we we work really, really hard to make sure that our folks understand, uh, and have for a long time, that this ministry is not about us, not about gathering here in this place for all the beautiful things that may hopefully occur but is about what happens when you leave this place and how your faith gets gets lived um, at work and on boards and serving dinner and advocating far beyond. Mm-hmm. Your church is celebrating its 50th anniversary. How are you observing that milestone? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On May 5th, we began a really fun year of celebrations with my predecessor who was there for a little over 30 years preaching and we, invited some charter members who'd moved away, back, and spent a lot of time. This first phase was on, was on honoring the past, on telling wonderful stories, grounding up every bit of old pictures we mm-hmm. can. Um, we also began a, a fundraising effort to give a 50th anniversary gift to the community. So we, we figured, in, in keeping with your previous question, that, that uh, the way we would celebrate um, is not to do something for ourselves but to to continue to help build, build the future way beyond us. Mm. Um, and so we're hoping to raise at least 50, um, and, and we will take more, um, to split in half and to give gifts to the, the Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina, with whom we've had long standing relationships, um, and then the other half to a capital campaign at Montreal Conference Center, thinking about the ways we're helping to build the future for those who are helping those who are hungry and hurting and building the future of those who are, who are training future leaders of the church. In the vein of the bicentennial moments Mm. from our country back in 1976, um, we've got minutes for mission and worship throughout much of the summer with folks from earlier days telling stories, using this as an opportunity to tell, especially the folks who've come in the last couple of years, say here's here's how things were at the beginning. Here's how we started in Hope Valley Elementary School 50 years ago. Here's how um, some good neighbors deeded us some of this land. Here's how we started to work together. Here's our first mission trip to Mexico, um, helping to invite them all into the broader story. And we'll celebrate on Rally Day, and we've had a hymn commission dinner, Going to some, did some wonderful musical things on May 5th, and we'll do some more in the spring to celebrate and tell the story. Wonderful. And you personally are passionate
5: about the way the church bears witness in the world, and that has prompted you to serve on a number of city and county social service agencies, one of which is Durham's Homeless Services Advisory Committee.
3: Tell us about the work of that commission. In response to federal legislation 15 years or so ago, a lot of communities began putting together um, 10-year plans to end homelessness. Mm. And the government, especially HUD, started encouraging communities who wanted dollars for affordable housing and things like that to work to work together. Instead of having multiple agencies within a certain city, uh, they, said, they said, to cities and to counties, to continuums of care, they called them, get on the same team and put together one joint application forcing kind of leveraging leveraging that money as an opportunity to to force folks in the community to work together Mm -hmm. more than they might have otherwise and like many communities there have been seasons where things went well and seasons where things didn't go well Um, but a couple of years ago three years ago a little less than that um, both Durham City and County said we're we're going to give this a reboot and give it more attention than we've been giving it and created a new commission that, that we've expanded and now has 30 folks but has people from um, the city council and board of county commissioners and a number of really high, high level political folks, which is wonderful, give us some focused attention um, and folks from the faith community and the business community um, and, and all the wonderful academic institutions from Carolina and Central and Durham Tech and um, Duke and all these, organizations that have significant stake in what we're doing, providers who are on the ground each day. We come together monthly for for a big board meeting, but a lot of that's spinning out into into smaller teams to, to help make sure the point-in-time count happens so we can have an accurate assessment of what that community right. looks like in town and um, working together to help create an environment where all the nonprofits we have in town, our area, has a ton of them and, and lots of people who are doing lots of wonderful work, but there's also a pretty decent amount of duplication of services, so finding, doing kind of the nuts and bolts work of, of creating new opportunities for partnerships and collaboration, and um, trying to make sure that, that we are doing the kind of broader systemic work that can be done as well as, as possible so that the people on the ground are, are, are getting served, and the money and the resources that are needed get to them, and we're all moving in the same kind of direction together. Well, your sermon this week is based on the gospel
5: lesson for today from Luke chapter 16. Would you read it for us? Luke
3: 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come to lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So Jesus
5: has been telling his followers several parables in this section of Luke and gotten into it a bit with the religious leaders, and then he tells this very vivid story. How surprising would this
3: story have been to those who first heard it? It's amazing how... Jesus and how Luke build the drama because we have a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously, not most of the time, every, every day. And so this picture is drawn, this stark, stark contrast, and then at his gate lays someone who's as, as different, right in front of his gate, as different as he can possibly be. So Jesus sets this up and then begins this long distance call, as King says, <laughs> talking about in the sermon, which I think is a really nice way to think about it. And you realize in the midst of this that, that the rich man, even, even though he's died, and in Hades he says, the rich man doesn't think anything is different. The same structures, the same, the same realities there were in play before were in play then. And the man who sat outside his gate, who he didn't have time for before, now he can call on him and he can come help because that's how it works now too. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus, in, in, in a really beautiful and, and absolutely terrifying way at the same time, that is what he says throughout the gospels in many different ways that in the kingdom that is breaking in even now things are changing for those who have things will be turned on their head and for those who have not for whom this life is filled with, with immense suffering and pain that a promise is there for you and our call to find our place in that story and to participate in the inbreaking of that kingdom as well.
5: chris your sermon is entitled blindness and a vision of community thank you for being with us thank you
3: Somehow, interestingly, this parable often shows up here in the fall, when many of us preachers are navigating our way through stewardship season. We want to speak of the joy of seeing your gifts shared with others in a way that changes things. But we're also stuck. We preachers have a budget to raise, our own salary included. Some of this money goes out to organizations that feed and clothe and house that are on the ground with hurting people in ways our churches hope to be, yet so seldom are. But these are anxious times. Regardless of glimmers of hope amongst economic indicators, we don't feel free. Folks in our pews are still worried about their jobs. Too many churches, even good, strong churches, are hedging bets as they build the budget, asking those who run programs to run them on less. Neglecting raises for staff, again, letting the budget anxiety nudge them into making decisions that lead to more keeping, more hoarding, less giving. We don't feel free. And Jesus hits us on the head with this parable. As best I can tell, the immediate context begins on the way to dinner at the house of a leader of the Pharisees in chapter 14. The conversation continues, the crowds gather, and by 15-1, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Chapter 15 holds the parables that build upon each other, lost sheep, lost coin, lost brother. Luke 16 begins a discreet unit, Alan Culpepper argues, that begins and ends with a parable, both of which start with, there was a rich man. This theme doesn't appear out of the blue. The warning that one's wealth must be handled wisely has been a recurring theme in the travel narrative. At dinner, Jesus denounced the greed of the Pharisees. The rich fool forfeited his soul. The prudent steward was praised. And warnings are given throughout chapter 12 regarding how to prepare for the final accounting. No one can be Jesus' disciple who will not give up all of his possessions. And despite the insertion of sayings about the law, kingdom, and divorce in between 16one to thirteen and sixteen nineteen to thirty one, it's likely that they will still hear the preceding parable's final words: "You cannot serve God and wealth," ringing in their ears. Hopefully, by now, you've figured out that we are the rich man. I'm Presbyterian, and we bounce back and forth with our Episcopalian brothers and sisters at some of the wealthiest churches in the country. The number of folks with graduate-level education in our pews is really high. We, you and I, the kind of folks who tend to listen to day one, particularly in the United States, are among the richest and most well-educated religious people around. Yet, according to United States government figures in 2011, 46.2 million people, 15% of our population lived in poverty, including 16.1 million children under the age of 18. Urban Ministries of Durham, North Carolina, where I live, tells us that their shelter served 1,255 different individuals in 2011. They housed 32 homeless families with 71 children. You've all got these stats within easy reach in your own communities. We sit in our homes and churches and feast, sumptuously, Luke says, while folks sit at the gate picking their sores. We are so rich and so smart. Why do these families not have somewhere to stay? What else is going on? My father was searching through an old storage closet in Montreat, one of our denomination's national conference centers in the mountains of western North Carolina a handful of years ago and came across a recording was a tape from Anderson Auditorium in Montreal from a weekend late in August 1965. The speaker, one Martin Luther King, Jr., begins his speech at a church retreat by apologizing. He was supposed to have spoken Thursday night, but was in Watts, Los, Los Angeles, meeting with government officials on the streets, trying to quell the riots there. In this speech, King challenges the church on issues of race, pushing them to be more than clear on their stands on segregation. And then he moves into the connection with issues of poverty. He takes some time and points the assembly to our text. There's nothing in that parable, King says, that says is the Latin name for the rich man, went to hell because he was rich. Jesus never made a universal indictment against all wealth. King names the story of the rich young ruler but says but in that story, when Jesus tells the man to go sell all he has and give his money to the poor, Jesus was, quote, prescribing individual surgery, not setting forth a universal diagnosis. King moves on, pointing us toward the kind of symbolic long-distance call that takes place between Dives in hell and Abraham with Lazarus in heaven. King claims the Dives went to hell not because he was rich, but because he passed by Lazarus every day and never really saw him. He moves on to say that Dives went to hell because he allowed Lazarus to become invisible, because he failed to use his wealth to bridge the gulf that separated him from his brother Lazarus. In fact, he didn't even realize that Lazarus was his brother. If King is right, this may not be ultimately a text about poverty about our wealth, or about the proper allocation of resources. This is a text about vision. This is a text in which Jesus calls us to confront the reality that every day we pass by people who are in desperate need. In obvious ways, and in far deeper, less obvious ones, and we walk right by. Most of the time, I genuinely don't think we do this on purpose. But the results are the same. Needs are not met. Children remain homeless. Adults, people you know even, remain trapped in desperate fear and loneliness. It seems to me that one of the reasons that poverty is so difficult to confront is because it forces us to look into the eyes of people who are not as different from us as we would like to believe and hear their stories and walk with them in their struggles and see really see the pain living in their eyes. What are we blind? Make your list. You all have your own contextual distractions, and we're all busy dealing with our lives and our ministries and our families. So many people heading in so many different directions, and everyone is tired all the time. And another man asks us for change on the street and we put our blinders on as we head to Home Depot. We have paint samples to match, after all. On spring break in high school, Black Mountain Presbyterian Church, where I grew up, went to the Church of the Pilgrimage in Washington, D.C. One evening, they brought in a handful of homeless and formerly homeless men to tell us their stories. I still remember clearly a moment when one of my friends asked, A man what to do when a person on the street approached him asking for money. He said that we should do what we felt like doing. If we give them money, be fully aware, he said, that it may be used for food, but just as well may be used for something else. He said to follow your gut as you make that decision. Then he added the critical point. He said say yes or say no, but treat me like a person, he said. We spend our whole day not being seen. Do not act like we aren't there. In that same speech in Montreat, King continues, I submit this is the challenge facing the church, to be as concerned as our Christ about the least of these, our brothers and sisters. And we must do it, because in the final analysis, we are all to live together, rich and poor, Lettered and unlettered, tutored and untutored, somehow we are tied in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And for some reason, King says to us, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way God made the world. We must all learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will all perish as fools. And so past poverty, past vision, it's about community and the key to how community is formed. Ask someone who digs deeper to give a sacrificial gift or packs up a bunch of clothes and takes them downtown. Ask someone who spent the night with homeless families, volunteering at a shelter, who has slept in a car or on a hard floor, on the Gulf Coast doing disaster relief, who's really sat down at the shelter over dinner and listened. Because once you do something like this, and so many of you have, you cannot go back. You cross over a gulf, a chasm, and see and understand human need differently from that point on. Your vision is forever altered. And you see the world in all its richness and brutality and immense, complexity, but you also see the person in front of you as a beloved, beloved child of God. Culpepper writes, the parable is addressed to lovers of money. At the beginning, hearers or readers may assume that they are expected to identify with the rich man or with Lazarus, but the parable is far more subtle than that. By the end of the parable, we realize that we stand in the place of the brothers the question is whether we will hear the scriptures and repent these are hard days to be sure but lazarus is in front of us at the gates every day and we still have the chance to change things if only we are willing Christ of vision, clear our eyes. Challenge us, we who love what we have, our money, our things, our identities, with a vision of your beloved community, community that includes all. Amen.
0: Chris Tuttle offers some final reflections on today's message with our host, Peter Wallace.
5: Chris, thank you, I think, for this powerful and thought-provoking sermon. It's so easy to hear this story Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus dispassionately, patting ourselves on the back that we're not like the rich man in hell because we are believers. But you made it clear that we are the rich man if we're ignoring the needs of the poor in our very midst. How might we become more aware of the specific needs in our
3: own neighborhoods? How do we open our eyes and hearts to Lazarus? I think there are a couple of ways we can be working on that. One is what I mentioned at the end of my sermon that was a really powerful moment for me as, as the summer spring break of my junior year of high school was having these homeless and formerly homeless men saying, treat me like a person. Mm. Look at me. Because I think in, in those kind of first-run encounters on the streets like here at Atlanta or anywhere else, we get nervous, we freeze, we don't, want, we don't know what to do, and so we look down and we keep going. Or we shrug our shoulders and we go right by. And while I think you can get into pretty tricky territory pretty quickly on, on the best way to engage any of a variety of these kinds of situations, I think the lesson that this man taught me remains in force. Look, see, look into their eyes. Regardless of, of what you end up doing, have a sense of the humanity of this person. Because I think when you, when you do that, when you, when you remind yourself and do the hard work, it reminds us of our own privilege as well and to what we're called. But when you, when you force yourself to encounter another person's humanity, regardless of who they are or what they look like or where that works, you, you can't help but be drawn in. And you can't help but do your best to go back to, to the congregation you're a part of or whatever and say, say well, who are our community partners? Who are they? What do they look like? And we, we begin the process of educating ourselves on all these folks who are doing extraordinary work in our communities. And the more we, we learn about them, the more we learn where we can find our place and find for our own particular circumstances and where we are in life ways where we can do small things, like serve meals who come to hospitals for cancer treatment and don't have somewhere to stay, or to go to a Ronald McDonald house, or to go to a shelter downtown, or those who have time to – engage um, a month-long project or who can show up on Saturdays and build or who can go on a short-term or long-term mission trip and to make sure that, that your particular faith community is engaged in doing that work for themselves and finding a place to touch with those community partners for all sorts of folks in your faith community.
5: And you said beyond poverty, beyond vision, it's about community and how it's formed. Community involves everyone. As Martin Luther King Put it, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. Would you say more about how to build
3: the community of God in real ways today? Mm -hmm. To tag on to your question a moment ago, I think it is too easy, even when we're trying to help and try and see those in need for those of us in more of a power position, for it to become a transaction. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm helping. And you offer your help, and then it makes us feel a little bit better, and we can go home to our homes and not not be transformed in, in, in deep and powerful ways. Um, so attending to that, but I think the, the thing that resonates in this, in this world where so many people are going so many different directions and in which we feel connected in so many different ways but are also so terribly lonely mm-hmm. is, is found. We're working hard at the church to create how do we find as many ways as possible for people to sit down together mm-hmm. over a cup of coffee, over simple food, these sacramental things and listen and tell stories. People are hungry for authentic space to share who they are and to learn and and to listen from one another and God. Make sure as we're moving it and planning our programs and our projects and all the things that good churches like to do, that we've got simple space to listen to each other. Because too often, we miss it. Mm.
5: Chris Tuttle, thank you for being with us, and we look forward to having you back next week. Thank you, Peter.
0: Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and Forever.
4: Churchgoers looking for the little morning inspiration?
6: Well listen to morning inspirations and the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. <laughs>
9: Thank you.
7: This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
6: We're just a few days away from Christmas. And, uh, I don't know about you, I'm gonna be as good. I'm going we're gonna be as ready for Christmas as we right now. <laughs> Here's the tutu Children's Quiet.
2: believes the game of chess rescued him. He was in high school and running with a dead-end crowd when a teacher challenged him to a match. Warren played and something happened. From a board game, he learned that choices have consequences. He learned to anticipate decisions and improve their outcomes. Now, after years as a state trooper, he heads Be Someone, a project to help other young men change their lives. He's again using chess to teach strategy, victory, and wisdom from defeat. This is Howard Butt, Jr. of Laity Lodge. Can a game save a young man's life? Yes, a game, and someone who cares enough to teach in the high calling of our daily work.
0: For more information, visit ourdailywork.org. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. We didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So um, we don't have those energy star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Cause. A little here and a little there can add up to a lot later, and you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah, and I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow.
7: What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. This heavyweight bout is
10: about
2: to begin. What's the champ wearing? Looks like an examination gown. And from the back, ooh, that's not pretty. Champ, what's with the get-up? I've got to take care of my family, so I'm getting those
10: important medical screens. Woo! The fight is over! Champ, you look pretty
2: healthy out there tonight, but I'm still getting those tests. For a list of tests you need, go to AHRQ.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to ahrq.gov. This message brought
7: to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council.
6: Hey, churchgoers. Looking for the little morning inspiration? Well, listen to Morning Inspiration and the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. <laughs>
9: Thank you.
7: Think you could easily get to your family if a disaster struck right now? Think you can wing it during an emergency
5: because you're a New Yorker?
7: Most parents don't realize that protecting your family starts long before an actual disaster strikes. It starts today by being prepared and making a plan.
0: To learn how, take our readiness challenge at nyc.gov slash ready new york or call 311 for information. In this online tool, you'll be faced with real life challenges teaching you the importance of being
8: prepared for a disaster.
5: Brought to you by the New York City Office of
8: Management and the Ad Council. Hey, Nick Cannon here. So of course we all know there's lots of talent in America, but unfortunately, there's something else we've got way too much of, childhood hunger. 17 million kids struggle with it in this country. Here's the thing, this problem is entirely solvable. Seriously, we already produce more than enough healthy, nutritious food in this country to feed every single last one of those hungry kids. We just need a way to get it to them. That's why the Feeding America Nationwide Network of Food Banks is out there every day gathering surplus food to give hope to hungry kids and their families all across the country. But they need your help. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. Together we can solve hunger. Together we're feeding America.
4: Motor vehicle crashes are costly and preventable. More than 2.5 million Americans
7: went to an emergency department for crash injuries in 2012. These injuries totaled $18 billion in lifetime medical costs and an estimated $33 billion in lifetime work lost. While these numbers are disturbing, there are effective measures that can help prevent motor vehicle injuries. State-level changes are especially effective. State officials can consider using proven interventions that increase the use of car seats, booster seats, and seat belts, reduce drinking and driving, and improve team driver safety. Everyone can use seat belts on every trip, no matter how short, and buckle children in the back seat in age- and size-appropriate car seats, booster seats, and seat belts. Because Americans take so many car trips, everyone is at risk for motor vehicle injuries. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs.
6: You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minnesota.
4: would
11: you join with me
5: please in prayer
11: pray with me lord jesus i am a sinner jesus thank you that you love me enough that you became a man died on a cross Pay the price for all the wrong things that I have done. I'm sorry for my sin. It's my sin that puts you on that cross. And I'm sorry. I don't want to live in rebellion to you anymore. I ask you to forgive me. And tonight I open my heart and I invite you into my life. To be my Savior and my Lord. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me to pay the price for all the wrong things that I've committed against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead, from the death of the and you are giving me a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. Oh, God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart and according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved. I am saved. Hallelujah.
10: ask you friends in closing tonight, have you done this? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to that obedience of faith? Have you come to that place of true repentance and true faith? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting alone tonight in Jesus Christ for your salvation? For there is no other way, there is no other message. For there is no other way, there is no other message. Oh, come to him. Come to the Savior tonight. Come to him just as you are. Come to him in your sin. Come to him in all your needs. cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. And cast yourself, cast yourself upon, your upon his mercy and, earth, earth, and, upon, and his upon his infinite array, array, and Cast yourself wholly to him, and you too will enter into that joy of sins forgiven, peace with God, and eternal abundant life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For well, how will you escape if you neglect so great salvation? Or well, how will you how escape? Will you escape? you to oh, they